Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. While we are both one week older, it appears that the news stories and news outlets are still one week stuck in the past because um, wall-to-wall coverage of the same stuff we talked about last week, eh, Everald? Well, well, it is, and it's incredible. I mean, I was living for the point when Monday night would be out. I'm going to watch the funeral Monday night. I'm not watching anything before then. It's just rubbish. I watch the funeral because the English can put on magnificent funerals, and and I will pay my respects to the Queen. You know, in that I don't see why I needed to weep and wail. Uh, you know, all, all, all week, and I put a tweet out this morning saying, "Will the media please note that every one of us loses our mother at some point in our life, and this is not an extraordinary event that needs this this wall to wall coverage." I'm getting quite a few people, uh, you know, supporting me with that, but I mean. Uh, well, what's your view now, James? You're, uh, I, I've been around watching the Royals. Well, well, I don't deliberately watch the Royals, but you can't ignore them. But I've been around watching them for a long time. Yeah, yeah you've been watching them for 70 years, less than me. Now, what, what's your view of all this hocus focus that's going on? I mean, obviously, we are a Commonwealth country. So when the Queen passed away, that was always going to make the news and be an important event, um, especially because she'd been Queen for that same 70 odd years. And, you know, even as a young person, I have friends who are big royalists. I think it's weird that, nevertheless, these people do exist and they're real living, breathing, normal people. They are among us. Um, So there's definitely an appetite for it in a lot of circles. Uh, I I just think it's too much. Like, it's it's almost morbid, um, the extent to which every little thing these people do are analysed. Like, I saw there was a big brouhaha on Twitter yesterday because Harry and Meghan Markle were holding hands when they left Westminster Hall. Now, I it's very hard to make me feel pity for famous people who sit on mountains of money and insulate themselves from all the criticism they want. But, you know, over the past two years, or by all these royal watchers and royal experts and that, like the amount of stuff they've piled onto that Meghan Markle is horrible. Um, it's, it's vicious, it's tabloid, it's gossip. Um, it's just, it's hard to watch at, in normal times, let alone now, and it's, you know, 24 hours wall-to-wall covered. Well, it's ridiculous. I mean, the ABC constantly got crooked that the government hasn't given them enough money to operate, and I think in general principle I'd agree with that. But I, I fundamentally disagree with them sending 27 of their staff over to England yep. to cover all this. If ever there was a massive waste of money for which a chief executive should be fired, it's the fact that, you know, that that happened. It was just and the ones that are over there spend all day long trying to make us cry, you know, and I can't for the life of me work out the point of it. I mean, the ABC, SBS has a much more sedate coverage of it all and, and less uh, weeping and, and uh, wailing. And, and, and uh, But it's, uh, you know, <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, yeah, um, uh, this is um, a, a flagging that I stole this from Twitter, but... Um, if the ABC, you know, they're sending these 27 journalists over, I don't think anyone can ever accuse them of lefty bias ever again, even they're sending, you know, friggin' half their staff over to talk about the Queen. It's like, even the, like, and you, you, you expect this out of Channel 7 and Channel 9. You expect this level of tabloid coverage out of them. But like you say, the fact that even the ABC is stooped to that level, it's, it's not a good reflection on um, where our national priorities are. And you, you almost think that, like, 
with the amount of coverage we're putting to it, the UK is going to become a republic before we do. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and look, it's, you know, I, I find it extraordinary. Obviously, I don't understand. I've got a daughter who lives in England, married to a, a Scotsman, and I talk to her every week and we chat about England and all that, but I can't imagine how anyone would stand in a line to pay their respects to the Queen. They stand in line for 11 hours is what the way the queue was. And when you get there, you, you're there for about five seconds. And then people come out weeping. I, I just can't, uh, can't uh, you know, you know uh, work that out. And, and I get a, a bit worried about the number of Australians here who are absolute royalists to the core and sit in front of the television all day watching this. I mean, should we suggest to them that they go and live in England? They'd be much happier <laughs> in England instead of besieging us out here. I mean, you'd think so. You'd think so if, if they love them so much, you know. Um, but let's let's roll out that Pauline Hanson line, you know. If, if you don't love it here, then leave. But let's roll it out at the Royalists. Um, <laughs> now, I it might be overly simplistic, but the metric I like to use to judge these sorts of things is I like to think, if this was happening in North Korea, how would our news be treating these events? And if, you know, if, if the North Korea, if something happened to the North Korean leader and there was two weeks of wall-to-wall -wall news coverage of nothing else, you had people waiting 11 hours in line crying to go view his body, our news outlets would be pointing at these North Koreans and laughing and saying, look, this is evidence of the Chimpot dictatorship, of how these people have no control of their minds, of how they are subservient to the, the Kim dynasty and so on and so forth. But when it happens in England, oh, it's completely normal. Let's get involved in it too. Yeah, well, well, it's a, it's a phenomenon. And, and also Australia having a Memorial Day three days after the Brits have buried the Queen and we hope the Brits will then shut up for a while. Three days later, we're going to revive it all here in Australia. And I just find that unbelievable that this, uh, this, this would happen and I intend to deliberately ignore it. I, I think the reason it's on that day from memory is something to do with the Operation London Bridge plan and how um, we can only have our Memorial Day after our uh, Vice Regal Representative Prime Minister returned from the funeral. But how uh, British they, they, say to us? Exactly, exactly. Say to yeah. us, and we say, yes, sir. Because the British, and that, that really gets me steamed up. But tell the Brits to go to hell. We'll have our Memorial Day when we, uh, yeah. you know, when we want to have it. Which leads us on uh, to Geoffrey Robinson has stirred the pot uh, this week. You know, Geoffrey Robinson QC used to run the, the, the television show and what have you. And uh, one of the world's most respected uh, law, law lawyers. And he has said that we don't need a head of state that we can survive uh, and therefore we can get rid of the British and we can get rid of any elected president. Uh, he's saying we don't need it, that the Chief Justice could be the person who swears in the Parliament. There's an election held and they've got to be sworn in, but the Chief Justice should be the person who uh, swears them in. There's no need for a head of state, uh, you know, to do it. And, and that uh, any with legislation that has to be passed, has to be signed that the government, that, that someone from the Supreme Court, either the Chief Justice signs legislation passed through the Parliament or uh, delegates another justice to sign on, on his or her behalf, 
And that, that seems to me to be worth looking at. Now, there's probably some legal things that I've missed, uh, uh, but it would save all this hoo-ha of having a British person instead of state or an elected person to become a politician. This could be, one presumes, the Chief Justice is not political. Now, you're my Chief Legal Advisor, James. Will this work or not? Well, uh, there's a few sort of worries I have about it. The first is the position of the Chief Justice becoming political because we know, um, you know, Whitlam dismissal, that the Governor-General um, was big in a political capacity there. Uh, Morrison's secret ministries, the Governor-General again, with his nose in the trough. Now, if you put the Chief Justice of the High Court in a position where they have to make those decisions and they have to make those calls, I think it's inevitable the position of the Chief Justice gets politicised. And maybe I'm being too cautious with it, um, but just looking at the US Supreme Court and how things happen there, I will always oppose almost any measure which turns, which risks turning our High Court into a more politicised body. Uh, because to my mind, one of the biggest reasons that I don't consider America a democracy, and their media is part of it, but one of the biggest is that their Supreme Court is not an impartial body. Um, whereas here, I've said it before on the podcast, our High Court is a very impartial body, by and large. Um, and that needs to that's something that needs to be protected and safeguarded at all costs. So I'm a little worried about, you know, resting those powers of like, appointing ministers, dismissing governments, et cetera, in the hands of the Chief Justice. Because even if the Chief Justice only does those things on advice, only appoints ministers on advice, et cetera, um, it still runs the risk of the Chief Justice being used as like a, a, um, a patsy in a nefarious scheme by an elected government, just like in Morrison's secret ministry scenario. The other question I have, and this is more like a formalistic question, is that on any constitutional challenge to legislation, if a judge of the High Court was the one who signed the legislation, like assented to it, signed it into being, would they have to recuse themselves from any High Court challenge to it, given technically yeah, speaking? Well, yeah. they, they would have to. If, if, yeah. if something they said, they would just say, well, I can't sit on this. And yeah. Be the way it was. But we had an interesting point back when Gough Whitlam was sacked. Kerr took advice from the Chief Justice of Australia at the time, Sir Garfield Barwick and Mason, the other one, who subsequently became Chief Justice. They advised Kerr that he could dismiss yeah. two justices. Now, had Gough Whitlam on the day he got sacked, everybody said he should have phoned the Queen and said, fire this bloke. But if Whitlam had gone to the High Court and said, these blokes do not have the power, this bloke does not have the power to sack me, well, then Barwick and Mason surely would not would have been yep. on that case, is that? Yeah, they, they definitely would have both had to recuse themselves. Now, the interesting thing, especially about what Kerr did there, is what Kerr did by going to Barwick and Mason and getting an advisory opinion, um, super illegal, like, like not just beyond convention, but the High Court, by its own decisions, is not allowed to give advisory opinions. It can only adjudicate on matters of law before it. Um, so that incident when Kerr went to Barwick and got legal advice um, with Mace, like Barwick went to Mason and they both sort of brainstormed it together and then Barwick passed it on to, on to Kerr. 
Um, Sir Anthony Mason's still alive, by the way, at age 96. Um, so you got a bit of catching up to do, Apple. But um, that that was probably one of the most politicised. I, I still believe if I met him at a party somewhere, I'd, I'd tell him straight out that he had no right to give advice to Kerr, none, none whatsoever. Well, the, the the high court's yeah the high court's own authority backs you up on that one, so uh, feel yeah. brave. Yeah, and and so anyway, Jeffrey Robinson's over. So we've got a situation when everybody stops all the hysteria about the Queen dying, and we settle down. The first thing we've got to do is get the voices referendum through, and then get into the into the thing about the Republic. We got sort of three issues: do we stick with the King? Do we have? Uh, oh, we got. Four issues: Do we stick with the king? Do we have, have an Australian head of state appointed by Parliament, or an Australian head of state appointed by vote of the people, or do we have the Chief Justice to do it? Now that's a nice, interesting four-way debate, isn't it? Well, I think there's one more issue um, we've left off the table there, and it's something we probably should have talked about last week. For being honest, and you know, hand on heart, forgot to bring it up, is also the need for um, treaty with our Indigenous peoples, given we're the only uh, formally colonised, you know, like turned Anglo nation without a treaty with its Indigenous population. Um, I think an essential part of um, moving away from the monarchy is also treaty. Um, and that's another essential step in determining before, we, before, yeah, I'd say even before we figure out how the president or otherwise head of state will be um, structured. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's interesting because you'll note that the Greens as a party are going to oppose the voices of referendum. They're going to allow it to go through Parliament so it can be held. So they'll agree to the room, but they are then going to oppose it. So you'll have the Greens and Pauline Hanson opposing the voices of referendum for two different reasons. And the Greens' argument is exactly what you said, that there should be a treaty with the Indigenous people first and then having got a treaty, they then have a voice in the, in the parliament and the treaty would, would, would enable that to be started. And that's the Green position. Yeah. What's your thought on what the yeah, Greens have done? The, the Greens are in a bit of a bind there because um, I know Adam Baird is totally happy to have the voice, but then the Greens, um, probably like rightly, made up one of their Indigenous representatives, Lydia Thorpe, who's really cool. Um, they made her their spokesperson on the voice. And she opposes the voice for that reason. She thinks treaty first, then voice. So the Greens have sort of backed themselves into a corner where they supported the voice initially. Uh, but now because their official voice spokesperson has said treaty first, then voice, they're stuck between either following that um, and not campaigning as hard for the voice as they want to or having like looking like they're an internally disagreeing um, sort of cluster of a party and they don't want that either. So I, I do feel sorry for the Greens in the position they're in. Um, yeah, but um, also it's going to be very interesting if a referendum is held uh, to have a new head of state for Australia in some form or other, how the nation will divide on any one of those five issues that there's yeah. anybody going to get a majority and it's, it's a... It's a it's an interesting thing. So we'll watch that with that. But can we turn on to, to something much uh, happier? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm very happy, by the way, for the Voices referendum to go through. But, but can we talk about Roger Federer, yes. who, who retired this week, age uh, 41? And, and that's extraordinary that a bloke has still been playing top flight tennis at that. Serena Williams must be somewhere around that age. But 
Roger Williams is one of the finest tennis. Well, let me go out and live. He is the finest tennis player I've seen in my 91 years. His elegance on the court, his stroke making, his ability, his demeanor on the court, uh, you know, has been superb. And he's been a great ambassador, you know, as a person, a well-liked person involved in the community in all sorts of ways. And, and I think even though Nadal and Dokovic have won more titles than, than him, I believe that he is uh, he is a, a finer player than either of those blokes who can bash the ball harder, but uh, Federer had some elegance. So uh, we, we're losing a fine person there, aren't we? Yeah, and I mean, like you pointed out, we just saw Serena Williams weeks ago retire at the US Open, and she's had an excellent and stellar career, and now Roger Federer as well. So we're losing two um, two titans of the game. Let's not forget Ash Barty's retirement um, yeah, true. Yeah, true. earlier as well. So we're, t- tennis is really taking some hits in terms of legends retiring. I think I think you've nailed it when you say Federer is probably the most elegant player of the current generation, because you watch Novak and he's just so clinically and technically proficient just doesn't make mistakes, perfect to every letter. Um, but Federer's elegance is something else. Um, that that race on the court, like I, I grew up loving Roger Federer. And as a result, I always hated Rafael Nadal because it was always Federer and Nadal, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, mid, mid-2000s, I should say. Um, Federer and Nadal Murray before Novak really came onto the scene. So I grew up thinking, oh, Nadal's evil, Nadal's the worst, Federer's the best. Um, but, you know, now as I've, uh, as I've matured, I've realised both Federer and Nadal are greats, and I'm very grateful to have been able to grow up watching those two Titans go at it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a shame to see Roger's career end, but I don't think, um, you know, he would have done anything any differently. After all, most professional athletes don't get 31, let alone 41, still playing the sport they love. So it's been an excellent career, and I think you're right that he's been an awesome ambassador for the sport, an awesome role model. Um, you know, every, every year it was great to have Roger here at the Australian Open. Uh, so we, we salute a legend. Yeah, well, we do salute a, a legend, and, and that's uh, you know, and that's you know, that, that's fine that we can, uh, you know, that we can we can do that, and, uh, and and it's important in life to have role models in various things, and I have all sorts of role models in my life at different compartments of my life, and in terms of sport. And demeanor in sport and the way in which one enhances sport, I mean, and his, his attitude as to how he handled tension and all of those things uh, is a way I say to myself, if only I could be as disciplined as, as Roger Federer. And in the words I speak, could I be as elegant as Roger Federer was as a tennis player? And, and so, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big thing to have a sort of role model like that that you can follow, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I think every person who's grown up watching sport, um, you know, me included, has drawn heaps of role models from the sports that they watch and they play. Um, and you, you just can't ask for a better role model than someone like Federer. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very lucky in this country that the Australian Open has always been on free-to-air TV. So everyone's been able to watch Federer. He hasn't been uh, only paywalled for people who have Foxtel. And I think, you know, the, my entire generation who has watched uh, the tennis has grown up watching Federer, um, and you know, not not to detract from Nadal or Djokovic, um, but if you had to survey a bunch of people and said, um, you know, who who out of the big three is your favourite to watch? I reckon Federer would probably shape it. I reckon Federer would be number one, um, and and for very good reason. 
Yeah, well, well, that's true. Well, now we get the good and bad guys. I was actually going to say that Roger Federer was my uh, uh, was, was my good uh, uh, guy of the week, and quite often we don't get uh, you know uh, you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of good guys of the you know of the of, of the week. But I was uh, I was pleased uh, just just going that this is my good guy of the week. Elbow did the right thing in taking some ordinary Australians with him over to the funeral over there. Uh, now, while, you know, I don't want to be seen anywhere near the funeral myself, I thought that picking a few of the people now, you can argue as to whether he picked the right people. But I thought that was a, wasn't a bad idea to let certain people do that. How did you react to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw people pointing out online that um, it's it's funny that Grace Tame wasn't chosen because I think the, the runner-up to Grace Tame as Australian of the Year was chosen, but she wasn't. Um, and I. No, I, I can't imagine the royal family and all the royal watchers would have been too pleased to see um, the outspoken and really awesome Grace Tame going over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I, um, I think, think Albert took an insurance policy out on her, but I mean, I agree that, you know, she's a, what you might call a divisive person, but I find her a person who's needed in, in life oh, yeah. in the role that she's in, and if she can keep a certain amount of personal discipline. I, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's fine. Well, who's your good guy of the week, Jay? Um, so my, my good guy of the week is um, Green Senator Maureen Faruqi. Um, she, in the wake of the Queen's passing, posted on Twitter. She said something along the lines of condolences to the Queen's family, but that she personally, um, she's Pakistani-Australian, that she personally um, couldn't really um, do much to mourn someone who's in the name of her empire, uh, so many bad things have been done to people all around the world. And that's a pretty innocuous tweet, like she was saying. She didn't like the notion of the royal family, but nevertheless, condolences to the Queen's family. Um, in response to that, Pauline Hanson tweeted back at her, uh, telling her to, and I quote, piss off back to Pakistan, um, which is just a disgusting thing to say. And the amount of abuse uh, Marine Faruqi has copped online for her tweet in the time since it's just been awful um and so i just wanted to say that you know we, we stand with uh we stand with her against racism and that no one should be treated uh like she was treated no one should be told to piss off back to their own country that's that's yeah. disgusting racism that you know it, it was obsolete in the 1980s let alone in 2022 and to hear that from sure, Pauline, she, took, she took it very graciously when Pauline yeah. and i thought her statement was a moderate one look all around the world, the Commonwealth of Nations send, are sending people there. But every one of them can point out in their history awful things that the British people did in yeah. their nation. And we can in Australia, and it's happened in America with the Indians when they were kicked out, the, you know, the, uh, and the Eskimos and, and whatever. Every one of them can say, what the hell are we having anything to do with Britain for? But that, that's things that in the past, some of them haven't been resolved. But I, I thought she made a... Uh, you know that she made a uh, you know a moderate uh, uh, a statement about no well, who's your bad guy of the week? Um, my bad guy of the week is also Pakistan related. My bad guy of the week is the industrialized economies of the world, because right now in Pakistan we're seeing um, mass flooding um, from glacier melting and heavy rains. Now Pakistan um, is a very big country. A lot of people in Pakistan. Um, and yet it's not a big carbon emitter. But uh, due to the size of its rivers 
and the size of um, its glaciers, Pakistan is one of the countries most susceptible to the effects of climate change. They're already having um, really bad flood incidences from melting glaciers and heavy rains in combination whenever those two things intersect. And right now we're seeing huge humanitarian disaster in Pakistan. Like I think at one point, the size of the floodplain was like bigger than Victoria, like the state of Victoria, um, which is just awful for the people of Pakistan. Um, and I think it's a, a disheartening reminder of how we as industrialised economies, at the moment at least, by and large, aren't the ones feeling the effects of the climate change we've created. Rather, it's nations that aren't as technologically sophisticated, whose living arrangements may not be as flood-proofed or fire-proofed or disaster-proofed as we are, um, who are facing the brunt and the consequences from our actions. So I think it's a reminder for industrialised economies to kick themselves into gear as regards climate action. Well, well, that's a you know that's that's a good point uh, that you make. And look, there are some of the major companies in the world who are doing something about climate change. There are some, but there are plenty who are who are, who are running uh, away. But it's a good point you make about the example of uh, Pakistan. Look, my, my bad guy of the week. I don't know his name, but there's a fellow who's pretty close to being a Nazi who's about to become prime minister in Sweden. Now, Sweden is one of the Scandinavian countries all have this unique, uh, people call it socialist economy. I, I, I call it more a people's economy or whatever, but they have been by and large uh, had uh, moderate socially conscious governments all the time. All of a sudden, the far right in Sweden has had a resurgence and they finished one seat ahead of uh, the other. But now, it could be that people are saying, well, after 30, 40 years of one sort of government, we need a change. But I wish they'd made a change other than to people who have very close links to uh, what you might call the Nazi movement in the world. And I thought that was a, 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 an indication that uh, the far right in the world uh, is not done and cleaned up, is it? No, I mean, we've, we beat back a lot of that, you know, in 2016 to 2019, there was that idea of the big far right resurgence between Morrison, Trump, um, Marine Le Pen polling well in France um, and all that. But we got rid of Trump. We got rid of Morrison, albeit replaced him. Uh, sorry, we got rid of Boris, albeit replaced him with Liz Truss, who's not much better. Uh, got rid of Morrison. Uh, Marine Le Pen lost again in France. But in on continental Europe, I think, is where sort of one of those last bastions of the hard, hard right is still living. And I mean, I, I hear that um, basically the modern fascist party is close to taking power in Italy at their upcoming election as well. Um, so that's one to watch. And um, the, the leader of that party, um, she has been sort of on the record blaming uh, like LGBT ideology for high crime rates and stuff like that. Um, she's also been noted to have like made some allusions, like um, sort of rhetorical allusions to Mussolini speeches which is a little bit of a worry because uh, that that Mussolini fellow wasn't wasn't too cool a guy, <laughs> I would say. So it's it's really worrying to see um, that ideology taking hold again in continental Europe. It was defeated in France, but like you say, in Sweden uh, and potentially Italy, it's on the rise again. True, and, and you know, I lived with Mussolini as a boy. He was in power when I was at We used to call him Musso. He, he was a big fat guy that you know thought he was running the world and. 
you know, he and Adolf Hitler go down as two of the more evil people. We certainly don't want any replica of yeah. Russo around. I have plenty of him in the 1930s. Well, now, James, we've come to the end of our time, but next Saturday, uh, hopefully the royal thing is all over. We've had our thing on Thursday, and, and, and hopefully it's all over. And the next thing on the Australian agenda of big note is then getting the voices referendum underway. The Republic debate can start, but it's got to wait. So we have the voices referendum in 2023 and the Republic in 2024, although Albo says he wants it in the next term, which might take us to 2025. But the voices things on now, there's all sorts of movements about the voices referendum and all sorts of opinions now coming and floating up. And, uh, and and I think it would be good for us to try and highlight some of the issues for and against the voices thing that we've heard of and how this might lead the nation because it's not, uh, well, I'm going to vote enthusiastically for it and you are, it's not a done deal by any means at the moment, is it? No, absolutely. And I mean, we've also got um, federal ICAC legislation coming up. Obviously, that was delayed because of the suspension of Parliament. Uh, thrust upon us by the British Crown. Um, but that's another thing around the corner. So big things coming soon, hopefully. Well, good. Well, we look forward to next Saturday, James. And, and, and it's been a good yarn, uh, a good yarn today. And, and, and we'll carry it forward uh, uh, next week because the world is all something happening. And, and, and uh, you and I can keep stirring the pot forever, can't we? So that's... Oh, uh, uh, we can. Yes. All the best, James. See you right. next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao.